I'm Alan Libsey, and welcome to the CFA UK In Conversation podcast. Now, this is the show for investment professionals all about issues, interests, and insights in today's profession. In this episode, I'll be talking to Justin McGowan and Duncan Sankey, two partners at London-based hedge fund Cheney Capital, and they're both specialists on corporate credit. Justin and Duncan, thanks so much for uh, joining me today. Pleasure. Uh, today, we're, we're going to focus on the principles of ESG and how those, how those principles are making a difference in the areas of corporate credit. So uh, let's start with you. Justin, look, simplistically, uh, I had assumed that credit investors, you know, just wanted their bonds paid off, you know, the debts to be settled. That's what I thought was a critical thing. How does sustainability ensure that happening? any more than focusing on cash flows and leverage? Well, I think your simplistic assumptions remain completely valid, and that, that is how credit investors get paid. You, know, you need to invest in um, corporates that will be relied upon to pay coupons and principal on a timely basis. And where we think sustainability comes into the picture is that you can't get away from needing to do the fundamental analysis, the traditional stuff with cash flows and ratios and how they're evolving. But you also can add an, an extra dimension to your perspective on what management's intentions are by looking at their track records on a governance basis, how they've acted historically, how they're likely to act going forward. And we think that that's helpful as an overlay. Now, let's move over to Duncan. Duncan, you're, you're Cheney's head of research. Um, so as head of research, how do you distinguish between the effects of the E, S, and G in your team's analysis. Would it maybe not be easier if ESG could be placed in a sort of quantitative framework with very clear goals for companies to attain? I mean, echoing what Justin said, we start first and foremost with G. If you look at investment-grade credit, you're getting and look at the spreads, you are compensated for implied default rates way in excess of anything we've seen historically, even when credit spreads are really tight, the same thing applies. Mm-hmm. And you have to ask, why are you getting this huge ex-ante return for, for the risk that you're taking? And the answer is there's an expectation that credit migrates negatively over time, and that as you crystallize losses from that migration, so you lose money. Why does it migrate? Well, it comes down to management. Either management is incompetent, uh, alternative management is assuming too much risk, or very simply, there's an agency issue there. If you think who management is working for, they work either de jure or de facto, they work for equity holders. And the easiest way to get returns for equity holders is to appropriate them from other stakeholders and, and creditors are kind of first in line because the only protection they have is, is a contractual one. Um, so if you're going to understand that and, and, and understand how those dynamics will work, you really have to invest the time in looking at management and you have to invest a lot of time in looking at the structures that channel and control management's motivations and actions, and that's governance. Now, you can, and we do to an extent, apply a tick box approach to that. You can try and quantify it. You can look at things like sufficiency of board meetings, regularity of board meetings, service time for directors, those kind of things. Mm -hmm. And that'll take you so far. But the danger is that you have a sort of victory of form over substance. Yeah. Um, You're sort of box ticking or something. Yeah, I mean, I mean, a good example. I mean, if, if you're looking at something like um, uh, a director's independence, 
They may be nominally independent, but if he or she went to the same school as the CEO, participates in the same social activities, sits on the same boards, charity-wise, are they really independent? So you've got to do that kind of extra leg of analysis. And really, when you're looking at the management, you've got to study, uh, I guess, what my headmaster used to call character. Um, And that doesn't lend itself to being quantified. Uh, You really need a lot of experience to do it. Um, I think when you're looking at the other variables, environmental ones are certainly the easiest to quantify. There are clear targets. You can see if a company is meeting them, progressing beyond them, deteriorating. Um, That does lend itself to a degree of quantification. As for the S, uh, that's a rabbit hole. It could mm. stand as much for subjectivity as it does for social. Um, yeah, one person's right. coordination, you know, is another person's uh, uh, theft of, of morally justifiable property rights. And until we agree, really, what we want from social, it's hard both to both to really get your hands around uh, at a very fundamental level, but also to quantify. So, uh, having said all that. I absolutely recognise that there's value in quantifying. Um, you can mm. compare to benchmarks, you can compare to indices, but the driver for us, which is governance, is still going to be a much more uh, a qualitative study than a quantitative one. Well, and also, I guess uh, the, the final test will be if, if pricing varies, you know, with better ESG produces a lower yield. Absolutely, yeah. And we're seeing and evidence. The, yeah. Uh, the, yeah, once that evidence comes through. Um, so... Uh, let's take it in a different direction slightly. Uh, Justin, do you think ESG is really applicable as an investment strategy in, in the credit markets? So, uh, you know, among the ESG factors, you were, you were talking about governance as key. Uh, could governance be the one driving changes in environmental and social factors? This seemed to be a, a key point of yours. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it's, um, it's, maybe less straightforward than it is in, uh, for an equity investor. You know, credit contains many different um, subgroupings of asset classes and it has different um, rights for different classes of creditor. Um, you know, you can't fuse one kind of um, obligation with another. So all that makes it more complicated. But it also, I think, um, it, it is applicable as a, um, an investment strategy, but you have to be very selective and apply a range of different awarenesses. You know, you can't simply plunge into um, a, a green bond portfolio and expect to be able to create, um, for example, a fully diversified um, portfolio of, of, you know, with su- sufficient exposure to a variety of sectors. And, um, you know, that that is not possible at this moment in time. It, it should become possible over time. So if you want to express ESG through credit, we think you need to be able to access the whole range of credit instruments in order to do that properly. Stepping back a little bit from pure corporate credit, is I, I, I've, I've recently done a, a podcast with one of your sort of peers on the long only side about uh, Germany's issuance of green bonds and you know what this could do for a green curve and. Um, um, you know, just the technical uh, use for it uh, in terms of benchmark and spreads and whatnot. And so how would you say the development of the green bond market is or has affected um, ESG mandates and credit? Investing? Well, I think I think it still hasn't. Or, or what potential could it have? Because I don't actually yeah, see that, I think that it hasn't fully developed itself. Yet. That's maybe a better way of looking at it because, you know, at present, <clears> I think it's not um, of sufficient scale yeah. really offer the, the scope for large investors to get heavily involved. It remains a kind of niche 
um, product. I mean, if you look at what's represented in um, green bond markets on either side of the Atlantic, it's quite a different blend of, of assets. You know, the, the US green bonds typically dominated by uh, the energy sector. In uh, Europe, it's more the banks and the utilities. Um, between the two of them, they probably that's probably 40% of what's outstanding. Issue sizes tend to be quite small. So again, that's, a, that's an obstacle to um, really spreading that kind of strategy uh, on, a, on a more global basis. Um, I mean, I think the, um, the corporate side of it is enhanced by the presence of, of sovereign green bonds. Um, and it certainly gives a scope for benchmarking, et cetera. But at present, it still feels like um, a part of the market that is, albeit growing, that it is growing rather, albeit that it is growing, um, it is not yet at um, sufficient scale to be particularly meaningful in, in overall returns. So I guess we're talking about something that's going to develop because if it is a benchmark for say a 10 year spread, then and there's more of it in, in Europe coming out of Germany, we'll just have to see. But, uh, onto the, the last sort of question here, and this is for either of you really, um, maybe Duncan is best for this one. Um, you know, even a naive, what I would call myself an equity babe in the woods, uh, knows that corporate credit is, it's not just bonds, right? Uh, there are other things other than just cash bonds. So could you tell us a little bit about how you think the ESG factors could percolate through the credit derivatives and structures uh, that are important in the market, other than purely on price and yield effects? What do you think, John? Yeah, I mean, I think if, 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 for instance, derivatives, if CDS are to work properly, they have to be a reliable barometer of credit quality. So if you believe that, and we absolutely do, that ESG affects credit quality um, and affects uh, um, credit worthiness through sustainability, then you should expect to see that influence not merely expressed in bonds, but also in CDS pricing too. I think where it becomes more problematic for derivatives investors is on the issue of impact and engagement. If you're a shareholder, you've got the nuclear option. If you don't like what management's doing, ultimately you could fire them. Now, it doesn't happen very often. What we are seeing more of is we're seeing them reject their remuneration packages, which is a very, very big source of influence for shareholders. If you are a debt investor um, and you're providing debt financing to a company, particularly as you go down the spectrum of credit quality into high yield where there's more leverage, you absolutely have influence over that company um, in terms of the, 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 its cost of capital. I think when you get to credit derivatives, it's less obvious that you have that power to, to engage and to have an impact. That said, there is nothing stopping someone who's accessing credit, credit spread risk through derivatives from dealing with managements, contacting them, expressing their view, because ultimately these markets are linked and movements in one affect the other and, and ultimately will feed through to pricing. So it, it's not, it's a second order effect, but there is still an effect there. Great. Okay. Well, that's all been really interesting to talk to you guys about this. Um, thanks so much, Justin and Duncan, for chatting to me and um, to our members today. Uh, and thank all of you very much for, for listening. Um, look out for our next podcast, the details of which are in the regular CFA UK newsletter, or subscribe to CFA UK's SoundCloud channel. You can find out more at www.cfa.org backslash podcast. 
Okay, gents, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.